Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, turn with me now to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, or the text for today is printed on ta- page 10 in your bulletin, and lo and behold, we have put paragraphs in, finally, so you can tell where we are, which is nice. Luke 16. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Be with us now, our Father, and work by your spirit as we hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. So this opening parable about the unjust steward is widely considered Jesus' most difficult parable. Um, You can see why. The story itself is just so odd. Uh, The manager's 
actions here appear to be completely self-serving and even really dishonest and immoral and even criminal, he just starts canceling debts of, that are owed to his master without authorization, essentially. And yet the real twist in the story is that the master commends him. And what is stranger by far than that is that Jesus commends him and in fact holds him up as some kind of example to us who are followers of Jesus, if you can make sense of that. Though not easy. It will help to recall that this chapter is continuing a larger text. Do you know that the chapters and verses are not inspired by God? They're not, they were not in the original Bible. God did not put them there. A bunch of people put them there. And sometimes the chapters and verses can get, well, you can miss things because they're there. Remember the larger thing that's going on here. Jesus was at a feast of the Pharisees. And at that feast of the Pharisees, he starts to talk about the feast that is God's kingdom. And he contrasts, you may recall, how relationships work in these two very different feasts and how resources operate in these very different feasts. So in, in God's feast, he told the Pharisees, the relationships at that feast are defined not by greatness, but by grace. Nobody at that feast, nobody at God's feast can say, I deserve this seat over against those other people down further down the table because it is the host's grace that anybody's here. Every single seat at this table is just a pure gift because nobody deserves to be here. Th the relationships are very different at the Feast of God's Kingdom. And as for the way resources work at God's feast, resources at this feast are given freely with no thought for return on investment. So different from the Pharisees' feast. You come to that feast, you better be ready to repay. That's not true at God's feast. Every outlay of generosity at God's feast, we all know the host will more than repay us, more than repay us. Maybe it'll be at the resurrection of the just, but you can just give freely because his reward is what we're hoping for. Well, then in chapter 15, the famous parable of the prodigal son, Jesus talks some more about relationships in God's kingdom, and he really kind of zeroes in on the question, is God's heart for lost sinners my heart? Can I look around at others and love the fact that they're at the feast, no matter how unworthy they may seem. Desire that others be at the feast. Is that, do I have the heart of the God who hosts that feast? And in chapter 16 now, Jesus is going to talk some more about how resources work in God's kingdom. And specifically, he's going to show us how God's open-handedness to us through Jesus opens our hands to others. So let's, let's look at this. There's a lot here. I, I want to begin with the, ta the tale of the manager. Very strange story. And I want to ask you guys, look at verse 1. Who is this story addressed to? Somebody, anybody. It is addressed to the disciples. Now, there are others listening in, as we'll see, but it's, it's aimed at the disciples. And interestingly, disciples who just heard the parable of the prodigal son. They just heard the parable of the prodigal son. And probably listening to that parable of the prodigal son, they would have identified with the younger brother who went far from home. He was a wandering sheep. He was a wandering son. And the disciples who have come to Jesus, they understand something that the Pharisees clearly don't. And that is, look, I'm a lost sheep. I'm a lost son. I need this shepherd. And so they would have identified with that younger brother who squandered his, his wealth and ended up needing to be, you know, to come home and be restored. And their ears would have perked up when Jesus, in the opening verse of this story, 
clearly links this steward story, this manager story, with the parable they just heard about the younger son. Because you wouldn't catch this in English, but in Greek you couldn't miss it. When it says here, this man, this manager, was wasting his master's possessions, that is the exact same Greek word that's used in chapter 15, verse 13, when we're told the younger son wasted his father's property with reckless living. Identical word. So immediately there's this interesting, huh, it sounds like this guy has got a little bit of the younger brother problem. But he also strangely sounds like the older brother in that parable they just heard because he's in a position of management. He has been kind of at home, as it were, running things like the older brother. But now, as you see in verse 2, there is a rift that has happened between this manager and his master. And in fact, it is so dire, the, man the master comes to his manager and he says, you're done. You are fired. You're out. Give an account. I want to see all the books. <laughs> now, what happens next is kind of bizarre. This guy, you know, you're about to lose your job. He, it's going to get very bad for him economically. He has, in, uh, is in verse 3, he has a kind of coming-to-himself moment that echoes the younger son who, in that far country where he was at a point where he was having to eat what even the pigs wouldn't eat. He was so destitute after wasting all of his inheritance. He comes to himself and realizes, I should go home. Well, this manager has a kind of coming-to-himself moment here, and he, he has to figure out a plan because he's, he's going to be destitute. But what he decides to do here looks like it could only possibly make his relationship with his master worse. Although, the, 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 if there's a, a silver lining, it is, that there's a, there's a practical benefit here. He, he will, when things go very bad with his master, he will at least have somewhere to go <laughs> when his master comes to give him a beating because he will make some friends with this plan. And basically what he does, as you see, is he, he, he engages in massive, unauthorized debt reduction. These are enormous quantities. Uh, one, the commentators say that the first guy, uh, he, he, he just writes off 100 measures, uh, 50 of the measures of oil that he owes, they, they, they tell us this was equivalent to 75 harvested olive trees or the cash equivalent of 18 months' worth of wages. He just slashes it, says, forgive him, writing it off. And the next guy who owes you know, measures of wheat, he forgives 20% of it, roughly the output of 20 acres of grain field, yielding a total debt reduction of about two years' wages. So he just starts slashing debts. This is a great way to make friends. I mean, this guy is popular <laughs> in the market. And we hold our breaths as we come to verse 8, because, well, the master hears about this, man. This guy might not just be fired. He might be dead. But then there's the most perplexing thing in the entire story, and you just cannot, people have scratched their heads over this, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of ink spilled, trying to explain what goes on here. The master commends the steward. He says, you're a sharp guy. Well done. Well done. How is that possible? How is he not furious? Well, think about this for a minute. What are relationships like between people who are way in debt and the people to whom they owe their debts? The greater the debt, first of all, the less likely it'll be repaid. The more you owe, the less likely you will be able to pay all that you owe. 
And one writer explains that these differing percentages that were remitted here were probably arranged according to the amounts that the individual debtors would have been able to repay. The partial rather than complete remittals suggest that the steward expected the debtors at least to attempt to settle their accounts as a result of these reductions, though probably not until the harvest. So basically what he says is, I'm going to slash this to where this debt is now something manageable. And you all know the whole, the whole thing in economics that half a loaf is better than no loaf, right? I mean, if the guy owes you a loaf and you're not going to get anything, maybe take half a loaf. And basically what this steward has just done is he has, he has made the debt load manageable, which means the master's going to see some money. In fact, quite a lot of revenue. He's created revenue flow that probably would not have existed at all as these debtors were just there saddled with a debt. There was not even a, a conversation about paying it. It was just too much. But it's more than that. It isn't just that the greater the debt, the less likely the creditor will ever see any of it. The greater the debt, as you know, the greater the relational distance between the creditor and the debtor. There is no love lost between someone who owes a million dollars and the guy who's going to collect it. This does not create goodwill. It does not create love. It does not create loyalty. And by slashing these debts, because see, the thing is, these people who are being forgiven these debts don't know this guy's been fired. So guess who they're praising along with the manager? Man, the rich man, he is, he's a, what a guy. And so this manager has just generated tremendous goodwill and probably even loyalty toward his master. You all know the story of Jean Valjean, you know, in uh, Les Mis, that moment of forgiveness, of mercy, of pardon. It wins his heart, it changes his whole character. And this man, by his generosity, has just won the hearts of these these debtors, not just to himself, but to the master. And Jesus then turns to his disciples in verse 9, and he says, now listen, I tell you, in my kingdom, you be managers like that with the wealth that your father has given you. Befriend with your money. Bless people with abundant mercy where they need relief, abundant goodness, abundant generosity in your father's name. Represent him well by just releasing people and helping people. Cultivate friendship by just being generous with your earthly wealth. Not so that people will repay you in kind. That's how Pharisees think. You're not giving and blessing and relieving and helping so people will give you more money back. But rather, he says in verse 9, make friends by means of, you know, wealth of this world so that when that fails, and it will eventually fail, the earthly riches have a shelf life so they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let your goal in just being generous and and laying it out thickly in your father's name, let your goal be that with these friends you're making, you can all live together in the eternal dwellings in God's heavenly kingdom. Let that be your aim. And give and give and give generously and release and release and release generously for that heavenly end. And he goes on and he says, because I, I, he says to his disciples, I, 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 you, you need to understand something. If you do not use your earthly wealth for my heavenly kingdom, then why should the king entrust the true riches to you? I mean, wait till you see the world to come. 
Where do you see the wealth that God is going to give to his sons and daughters? But if you will not use your earthly wealth to serve my kingdom, why should God entrust to you that which is, I mean, another level of wealth, he says. If you're faithful in the very, frankly, small potatoes of earthly wealth, wait till God entrust to you the true riches. And he, he says it even more strongly in verse 13, you'll notice. He says, if you're not serving the king with your money, if you disciples are not serving the king with your money, money is your king. Money is your king. If your money is not used to serve the king of this kingdom, then money is your king. You cannot serve God in his kingdom and serve money at the same time. One of them is your master. Now that's a lot to take in. And to really absorb what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, you have to notice how the Pharisees react as they hear this. This will be the foil against which become clear what Jesus is going after. So turn now from the tale of the manager to a question of masters, a question of masters, which verse 13 introduces. And I want to talk about that a little bit starting in verse 14. And you'll notice that as the disciples are listening to this story, some quote-unquote older brothers are listening in. So these are the characters who are represented by the older brother who hated the fact that his brother came home and got so spoiled by the father. They're listening in, and you'll notice, this is quite a heavy thing, they ridiculed Jesus. Can I just say, you have to be kind of messed up to ridicule the Son of God. But that's where they are. They mock him. They mock this generosity. Much as the older brother in the preceding parable just scorned his father for blessing the younger son who came home. Now notice the Bible just tells us here why they mock Jesus. They mock the, his exhorting his disciples to be generous with earthly wealth, like the manager. They mock that, we are told in verse 14, because they are lovers of money. Because they are lovers of money. That is another way of saying, as Jesus said in verse 13, the Pharisees serve money more than they serve God. Now, I want you to notice why the Pharisees love money, why they serve money, why they're so devoted to money. Verse 15, Jesus says, the reason you're mocking me right now about this whole idea of being generous like this is because you are those who justify yourselves before men. What he's saying here is this. Your wealth enables you to enjoy prestigious pleasures. That's why the Pharisees love money, because they love the prestige that comes, the prestigious pleasures that come with having lots of money. They love the sorts of things that are highly esteemed among men. They love things that exalt you among men. They just love it. Jesus says, God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men, God abominates it. They love, the rich man's an example of this down in verse 19. They just love the purple clothes and the fine linen and the sumptuous feast. They just, you know, they love having the latest iPad, iPod, whatever. They love having, you know, snazzy bling and lots of flash and all the stuff that makes you look like you are somebody. They just love it. It has their hearts. Status symbols, baby. Bring it on. And Jesus says something very sobering. He says, the pursuit of prestigious pleasures, God hates it. It is an abomination. It is a stench in his nostrils. Because you can't serve God, you can't serve King Jesus for very long 
before you begin to realize something. God has not given you and me one single thing to feel better than other people. He has not given us one single thing to be perceived as better than other people. He has not given us one single thing to climb the ranks of those who care about being better than other people. That is not why God has given anything to any of us in this kingdom. Rather, he gives us lots of great things. He is a generous father. He loves blessing his children. I would even go so far as to say God loves his children enjoying wealth, but he gives all of it to us to freely give. Why? Because that's how our father uses his wealth. That's how our king uses his wealth. He is generous. And if that is not our heart, if anything that God gives me makes me feel a twitch of superiority over other people, I am way outside the value system of this kingdom of God. Amen? But the Pharisees. Have a look at Lazarus. Lazarus is interesting because doesn't he remind you of the younger brother? He just would like someone to throw him what not even the dogs will eat. Like the younger brother just wanted someone to give him what even the pigs wouldn't eat. He's a broken, he's a mess. He's a, he's a down and outer. He's laid at the gate of this pharisaical rich man. But these older brothers, these men who are full of their own righteousness and full of their own status and prestige, they don't care. They don't care about the people that Jesus came to seek and save. They don't care about the people Jesus came to relieve and restore because they're just too busy living for self-gratification and self-exaltation. And then in verse 16, as if it's not, this isn't strong enough, Jesus goes for the jugular. I mean, this is just, wow. He just goes right for the jugular. He's talking to Pharisees, remember. Because see, what the Pharisees do not realize in all of their power and wealth and prestige that's used for self, nothing wrong with having power, nothing wrong with having wealth, nothing wrong with having status, but they they, they love being justified in the sight of men. What they do not realize is that Jesus' upside-down kingdom, this kingdom in which God exalts the slaves and brings down the powers, lifts up the poor and hungry, brings down the rich and the full, this upside-down kingdom with its upside-down value system, a value system that will shortly take the king of this kingdom all the way to a cross and a horrible death by torture precisely in order to bring millions of people into God's heavenly dwellings. That's the value system of this kingdom. That kingdom is going to replace and destroy the world system in which the Pharisees enjoy their prestigious pleasures. And Jesus says it this way in verse 16. He says, you all remember the law and the prophets. You teachers of Israel, you remember the law and the prophets. They all, all of the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, they prepared for, and the Pharisees would have known and agreed with this, all of those scriptures prepared for this kingdom that has arrived with Jesus. And the law and the prophets, they tell an interesting story, don't they? They tell the story of how God liberated a needy and undeserving people. And he gave them wealth in a land flowing with milk and honey so they might love him and love their neighbors. And the law and the prophets tell how instead those people turned away from the God who had given them these gifts and they oppressed the poor and the needy. And the law and the prophets go on to foretell how in Messiah's kingdom, God will once again liberate 
his people from their spiritual bondage and he will put his spirit in them so that they will, with all they are and all they have, they will love the God who has loved them and they will love their neighbors with God's own love. The spirit of God will come upon the people of God in the days of Messiah. And Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John and now it's the time of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. And he says, you'll notice there in verse 17, every single stroke Every pen stroke of God's law of love testified by the law and the prophets, that law of God's love, it is going to be fulfilled in the citizens of this kingdom who follow me. The king on his way to a cross. And meanwhile, that old world system, he calls it here heaven and earth, not talking about the space-time continuum. You'll have to take my word on this until we get to chapter 21. That old heaven and earth, that old religious political system the Pharisees love so much and in which they nullify God's law of love. I mean, amazing. They're religious teachers, but they nullify God's law of love because of their self-serving and their self-justifying. He says it's easier for that whole heaven and earth to be swept away than for one pen stroke of the law of God's love not to be fulfilled, and it will be because the kingdom is here. These are a different people. Unless the Pharisees think this is just about money. Jesus gives a passing poke in verse 18 at another area in which he says in another gospel, the Pharisees nullify God's law of love by their hardness of heart, and that is in the realm of marriage. Because in Jesus' kingdom, we're not looking for ways to escape our marriage commitments in search of, quote-unquote, something better for ourselves. We love faithfully because our king loves faithfully and the closing parable just really graphically illustrates that coming reversal in which one heaven and earth is going to be swept away and God's kingdom and its people will flourish and you see there in Lazarus embodied in Lazarus Jesus poor and his needy people the lost sheep the lost sons come home to the father they receive the riches of heaven and those who exalt themselves, and because they are so busy exalting themselves, do not care for the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor. They are cast out into fiery outer darkness. And, and Jesus' words at the end of that last parable, they hang heavy in the air. Because the rich man in torment wants someone to go talk to his brother so they don't end up coming to this place of ruin. And Jesus says they have Moses and the prophets. You remember the law and the prophets? It was all, it's all there. What God wants from his people, it's all in the law and the prophets. And the man says, oh, no, no, no. No, not good enough. Send them someone who risen from the dead. And these words hang very heavy in the air. The law and the prophets tell us that God seeks a people whose hearts humbly, humbly receive his provision and then generously give what they've been given. That's the law and the prophets. It's all there. And he says to this rich man, Father Abraham says to this rich man, if they were not going to listen to the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen even if someone rises from the dead. And indeed that will be true because someone shortly will. And they won't listen to him either. You know, I thought this is a very fitting text for the first Sunday of Advent, the coming of the king. The Apostle Paul tells us our king became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. I just want to close with a few quick things to search our hearts 
I don't speak to you as Pharisees. I speak to you as disciples of Jesus. But we need to hear what he said to the Pharisees as well as what he said to his disciples. And a few quick things to search our hearts as we follow this king. To start with, I must tell you, I think many of us are predictably political. Predictably political in our thinking about wealth. I've been shocked by this, actually. How much this is true. Jesus, Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked a lot about money. I actually wasn't expecting that when I started preaching through Luke. He talked a ton about it. And many Christians, I find, are so reactively, reactively committed to a political ideology about money, they have a hard time really hearing Jesus as he probes our hearts, not about having money, but about serving it, about being devoted to money. I'm just going to give you two very simple economic principles, two simple economic principles in Jesus' kingdom. Here's the first. The owner of your wealth is God. He's the rich man. You're just the manager. Let me state it a little more strongly. God owns all of your stuff, all of your wealth. And that ownership does not stop when he lets you use it. I'm going to give a little bit, a little bit more a little bit more focused about this. You and I are to spend our money as if God owns it. Our spending priorities are not ours to determine. They are Jesus's to determine. Can I ask you something? If Jesus doesn't decide how you use your money, who decides? Can you please give it a moment of reflection? If Jesus does not decide how you spend all of your money, who does? Some Christians think that because their money does not belong to any church, which is 100% true, they can live as if their money doesn't belong to God, which is 100% false. You don't owe a dime of your money to Trinity Church. Jesus owns every dime of your money and everything you own. And how you use it and spend it is his to determine. That's what it means that the owner of your wealth is God's. That is economics 101 in Jesus' kingdom. The second principle in Jesus' kingdom, the owner of our wealth is God. The purpose of our wealth is friendship. Jesus says, make friends with your wealth. Now that's an important thing. I love that he says it that way. Because obviously that means the purpose of my wealth is not to gratify my pleasures, though it's good to enjoy God's gifts. The purpose of my wealth is certainly not to exalt myself vis-a-vis -vis other people. It just takes that right off the table. If you're using your wealth for you, I mean, to meet your needs, to enjoy God's generosity to you, amen. But if you're using it to exalt yourself and just gratify yourself and that's how you think about spending money, you're way outside the value system of the kingdom. The purpose of your wealth, though, is friendship, which means it is the purpose of our wealth is not just to constantly be dumping our coffers into relief projects. This is such a typically North American way of thinking about poverty that the way you fix everything in the world is throw more dollars at it. 
And most Christians, when they think about using their wealth for Jesus, think about relief projects. There are, there are needs for relief, beloved. There are. And we should, as God gives us opportunity, be very generous in relief projects. But Jesus says something different. He says, make friends. What he's saying is deeper, and it's bigger, and it's more multi-generational, and it's more even civilization building in its scope. He's saying, invest your resources to build friendships in which we all together can taste and see that the Lord is good. I need to be concerned that the Lazarus lying at my door can taste and see that the king is good. Not become dependent on me as some kind of, you know, almighty, you know, Ben the benefactor. But taste and see that the king that I serve, the, my, the father of my family is good. And build friendships so other people, even your non-Christian friends that you make with your money, can taste and see that your God is good. And so that we can have as friends what we need to extend friendship to others. I want Lazarus not just to be you know, sit at my table and have something to eat. I would like Lazarus, as I help him and befriend him, to be at a place where he can go and befriend and care for others. That's so much bigger than just throwing your dollars at relief projects. And there are so many different ways to do this, obviously. But I want to say again, every penny on earth for Jesus' people is to be devoted one way or another to showing people the goodness of our King and with hope, with hope, drawing them towards life in God's eternal dwellings. Wealth is a gift. It is a gift. A heart to use wealth like Jesus is a rarity. And may God give us the heart of the King of Advent. Amen. So Lord, work on us, we pray, and we pray that we will be a blessing as you have blessed us beyond measure. In Jesus we pray, amen.